Hello everyone, welcome back to History Snippets. My name is Aaron, and today I'm going to be reading a snippet to my friend Sky, who has no clue who, what, or when I'm going to be reading about. Good morning, Sky. Good morning, or afternoon at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit late in the day. Um, so, uh, it's been a bit of, bit of a break, it's been a while since our, our last episode. Um, I'd like to have a good excuse, but truth be told, I am terrible at prioritizing. I've been writing four different snippets, and it was basically just uh, whichever one gets done first, that one's going out. So, on a more positive note, there's three other snippets. Uh, there's one that's done, and there's three that are over halfway. So, the next one should be forthcoming rather quickly. <laughs> Anyways, hold on to your assholes, kids. Oh, boy. John Dillinger was born on June 22, 1903, in Oak Hills, Indianapolis, Indiana, a small, middle-class neighborhood. His father was John Wilson Dillinger, and his mother was Mary Ellen Molly Lancaster. John Dillinger was the youngest of the two Dillinger children, having a 14-year-older sister named Audrey Dillinger. John's father worked as a grocer, and he was a rather weird man. Uh, he believed in using firm discipline on children. And in an interview with a reporter, he said he was a firm believer in the saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. You familiar with that one? Uh, yeah, a bit outdated at this point, but yeah. yeah. So basically it means uh, if you didn't beat your child when they acted out, they would grow spoiled and uncontrollable. Mm. But he was also extremely nice to his kids. It was said that he would lock his kids up in the house for days on end, and he would beat them, and he would yell at them. And then the next day, he'd give them money for candy and let them be out all night playing. That's going to be a bit terrifying. You don't know which version of your dad you're no. getting that day. Naturally, this really screwed up Dillinger's sense of responsibility. Because <laughs> one day, he's not allowed to speak and has to sit in a corner all day. And the next day, he gets a shit ton of money and is allowed to stay out all night at the age of seven. So, a yep. uh, little bit difficult to figure out what's right, what's wrong. In 1907, when John Dillinger was four years old, his mother passed away from a stroke. Because, of course. No, you, you can't have one of these stories if you had a happy childhood. No, that, that these stories, to be. they're snippets because they didn't have a happy childhood. Mm -hmm. That's, that's mm -hmm. the first key ingredient in the snippet cookbook. So, yep. his father did not deal well with the death of the wife. And uh, John, little John, went on to live with his sister, Audrey, who had married a man named Emmett Fred Hancock. Audrey and Emmett had seven children at this point. Audrey was 18. So, so yeah. Um, Wait. Mm, yeah, there we go. There's, no, I, there's I, the I'm math. I'm starting to do the math now. There you go. Seven yeah. children. She's 18. So, John, uh, John went to live with her, his sister. So she had seven mm -hmm. children, and he was four at this point, so he's just another one of the flock, basically. Sure. Um, and he was going to be taken care of uh, by the sister until the father was done grieving. John's father grieved by vanishing, returning seven years later with a new woman named Elizabeth Lizzie Fields, asking to get John back. <laughs> Took a while. That was just one way of doing it. John was returned... And went back to live with his father, now at the age of 11. Uh, John's father had three more children with his new wife, Elizabeth, uh, Hubert, Doris, and Francis. And John was now the oldest sibling. And he did not like his stepmother, Elizabeth, much. So he's now well, the oldest. And he doesn't, he doesn't even like his siblings. He doesn't feel like they're properly his siblings. He just feels out of place, basically. Well, at this point, how well does he actually remember his father? I mean, 
Yeah, he, age he's fought four, four. And then, like, 11. Yeah. I mean, that's basically a stranger so he comes coming back. by. Yeah, he comes like, back. He does up. know the father. Father's got a stepmother and all these kids that are not. Mm-hmm. So it's just, mm. he's just living with strangers, pretty much. Yeah. During Good family life. Yeah, it's going to be fine. Yeah. It's going to be great. This isn't going to affect him at all. Um, <laughs> during his teenage years, Dillinger began getting in trouble a lot. His two defining traits were said to be, quote, his bewildering personality and his ability to bully smaller children. Mm-hmm. Those were his defining traits. Yep. He's going to turn out to be a good guy, right? That's 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 the yearbook. That's He's got a bewildering personality and likes to beat up small kids. That's the two main things you remember about Dillinger's teenage years. Yeah, no, uh, definitely going to save the world. Uh He's yeah. the one who cured polio, right? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's where this is going. Yeah. At the age of 13, he established a gang called the Dirty Dozen. <laughs> so he's now running yeah, a gang. <laughs> the gang, led by a 13-year-old, mm-hmm. was constantly involved in minor crimes such as fighting and petty theft. Now, reports from the local kids are all over the place. Some of the kids said Dillinger was cheerful, a polite kid who didn't get into any more trouble than normal boys. Other kids mentioned severe juvenile delinquency, violence, and malicious behavior. This might have something to do with the fact that most kids were either scared shitless of Dillinger or on Dillinger's side. Yep. Um, it was also around this time, the age of 13, that Dillinger's relationship with his stepmother improved. And I mean that literally, as Dillinger and Elizabeth fell in love and began having a secret affair. So okay, every possible thing that can go fucked up in this kid's life is going fucked up. He's going full on Freudian now. It's not good. Yeah, yeah. So he's at 13 having an affair with his stepmother behind his father's back. And he's also running a gang. Yeah. <clears throat> this is called foreshadowing, kids. <laughs> Dillinger continued his habit of making bad decisions and dropped out of school at the age of 16 to work in a machine shop. Board of school and now wanting to make money on his own. Dillinger actually did very well at the shop. He was super talented with his hands, he was a good employee, and he understood how the machines worked. He stopped getting arrested for petty crimes, he stopped getting into fights, and he basically calmed down. But his father did not agree with his career choice and begged him to quit the job, which was keeping him occupied, and go back to school. Dillinger refused. So the father concluded that it was the city of Indianapolis that was corrupting his son and moved the whole family out to the countryside to Mooresville, Indiana in 1921 when Dillinger was 18. That's a uh, good choice. Smart. So he finally found something that's, that's calming him. He's working yeah. in a machine shop. He's working with his hands. He's super good at it too. Fixing cars, building parts. And the father's just like, ah, oh, we're going to the countryside. Yeah, father of the <sighs> year right there, right there. Dillinger still refused to quit his job and would ride 18 miles on a motorcycle every day to work, and then another 18 miles back home. That's uh, dedication. Yeah. He'd, he'd, so he'd get up super early, he'd ride 18 miles into the city, he'd work for 10 hours, and then ride 18 miles back out, where he now had to work on a farm, because the family now owned a farm. So he worked on the farm for the rest of the day, and then the stress of this really got to Dillinger. So he would be out all night blowing off steam in the only way he knew how, which was drinking, banging, stealing, and fighting. What a life. At this point, his father was lost and had no idea how to deal with his son, and their relationship quickly fell apart. A year later, in 1922, 
Dillinger wanted to take a girl out on a date, but she didn't like his rusty old motorcycle. So Dillinger drove into town on the motorcycle and drove out of town on a car he'd stolen. Hmm. Yeah, man. In a car. He picked up the girl and spent the evening roaming the streets of Indianapolis in the stolen vehicle. It wasn't hard for the cops to track him down and question him when the vehicle was reported stolen and was just driving up and down Main Street. Um, <laughs> since he was unable to prove the car was his, the officer tried to arrest him for Grand Theft Auto. Dillinger broke loose, punched the cop, and ran off into the night, leaving his date in the car behind <laughs> a good first date uh memorable very memorable very memorable he just pulls it like bye call me so kids did i ever tell you how i met your mother <coughs> i was arrested for three years <laughs> <laughs> they pinned it on me <laughs> it was love at first incarceration <laughs> uh, so tired of living in the countryside and now also a wanted criminal dillinger decided to enlist in the united states navy he enlisted as a petty officer, third-class machinery repairman, which basically is a mechanic. Um, yeah. And he was assigned to the massive battleship, the USS Utah. A few months later, the ship docked in Boston, and Dillinger just leapt overboard and deserted. <laughs> uh, this led to him getting dishonorably discharged. The USS Utah would later be one of the three large ships to go down in Pearl Harbor 18 years later. Uh, for whatever reason, Dillinger returned to Mooresville, the countryside. Um, despite hating it. There he met 16-year-old Beryl Ethel Hovius, and they married on the 12th of April, 1924. Dillinger decided he needed to settle down, but he was unable to keep a job, and the lack of money greatly affected his marriage. The newlywed couple was forced to move into Dillinger's father's farmhouse. That'll end well. A few weeks after the wedding, Dillinger was arrested yet again, this time for stealing several chickens. His father... It's a step down, though. Yeah, like, a little bit. Start Grand, with the car. And it's like... Yeah. Grand Theft Auto to uh, Grand Theft Poultry. That's It's a bit of a... De yep. His father managed to make a deal to prevent the case from going to court, but the relationship only got worse. Uh, and Dillinger and his wife moved out of the farmhouse and then into Beryl's parents' home in Martinsville instead. Hmm. Um, Dillinger got a job working in an upholstery shop. One day... In the summer of 1924, Dillinger was playing baseball for the Martinsville baseball team. He was super good at baseball. It's like there's like two things that if he's working with his hands or he's playing a sport, he's calm, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the baseball team, he met a man named Edgar Singleton, a raging alcoholic who was a distant relative of his childhood love, his stepmother. The two men had a lot in common, such as alcoholism, no money, and the ability to make bad life choices. And together they talked about how to solve their money problems. And Singleton had an idea. He knew of a local grocer, this old man, who took a trip to the barbershop every day after work, before dropping off his daily earnings at the bank, meaning he had them on him. The plan was simple. Dillinger would rob the old man of the money and jump into a getaway car Singleton would have running down the street. So a few weeks later, the two men initiated the plan. Dillinger was armed with a .32 caliber pistol and a wrench wrapped in cloth. He snuck up behind the grocer on his way to the barbershop and clubbed him over the head with the wrench. The grocer turned around, grabbed Dillinger in one hand, grabbed the gun in another, and they began to fight. During the fight, the pistol accidentally fired and went off into a nearby wall. Dillinger freaked out, thinking he'd shot the grocer, which he hadn't. Um, 
and he took off running for the getaway car. But Singleton had also heard the shot and figured that Dillinger had shot the grocer, and he panicked and drove off before Dillinger could get in the car. <laughs> so Dillinger just kind of ran for it down the street. Um, the grand total amount of cash Dillinger managed to make off with was $50. That's hey. about $700 in today's money. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, that's not, it's not good. No. Because Mooresville is a tiny town in 1924, Indiana, everyone knew everyone, and a local <laughs> priest had seen both Dillinger and Singleton, so they were arrested the following morning. <laughs> so ever- they're not good at this. No. They're, they're just not. Don't do a robbery at a small There's like 30 people in the town. It's not hard. Statistically, the cops can throw darts and you're going to be arrested. It's <laughs> So Dillinger originally pleaded not guilty. But Dillinger's father, who had now given up his job as a grocer and he'd become a deacon, uh, had a talk with the Morgan County prosecutor, Omar O'Hara, which I think is Irish. Um, He made a deal that if his son agreed to plead guilty and not show up in court with a defense attorney, he would get a considerably reduced sentence. Um, So Dillinger agreed to this, and he appeared in court the following day without any lawyer, and pleaded guilty to the great grocery heist of 1924. Now, despite the fact that he had made a deal, and nobody got hurt, and only $50 was taken, and he pleaded guilty, and he didn't bring a lawyer, the court went all out on Dillinger. He was convicted of assault, battery with intent to rob, and a conspiracy to commit a felony, which landed him a sentence of 20 years. Okay. Because Dillinger didn't have a lawyer and had already pleaded guilty, he was literally not allowed to argue the verdict. Literally not allowed. So was this his dad's intent? No. Dillinger's father was appalled by this and tried to argue with the judge, but to no avail. Like, he honestly, like, he thought it was a good good deal. If he agrees to plead guilty, he'll get, like, a couple years, maybe some community service. I don't know, they crush rocks with mallets. I don't know what they did back then, but... Yeah, the fi- it was a good deal. It's just the court was just like, no, we're going to make an example out of him. 20 years. Fuck the deal. Like, it's just the court being a dick. Like, he deserved punishment, but this is way over the top. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, meanwhile, Singleton, who had gotten a lawyer, uh, was released after a few years on good behavior, as all he'd done was drive a car, and also he didn't plead guilty and brought a lawyer. Mm. On the 31st of August, uh, 1937... Singleton was walking about shit-faced in the middle of the night when he got tired. So he laid down on some train tracks, passed out, and was promptly killed by a freight train shortly after. <laughs> oh my god. So that's how, that's how he went out. Oh. oh this looks that's like a good just, place. That's a different level of, like, stupid and bad luck. <laughs> just just like, got tired and laid down on a train track. On the train track. On the train track. Oh, oh my, my head's not comfortable. Let, let's see. Oh, here's a nice little soft I mean, spot. How shit-faced do you have to be to not even understand that that's a bad idea? Like, I, I don't. Anyways, so yeah, he went out. Um, <clears throat> now, Dillinger was locked up in the Indiana State Reformatory in Pendleton. When he arrived, he said, quote, I will be the meanest bastard you ever saw when I get out of here. So he's harboring some uh, some grudges. I mean, at this point, I can kind of get where he's coming Look, from. He's, he's not making good choices. But no. in his defense, everything that is fucking him over is fucking him over. His father's thought he didn't have a good childhood, can't keep a job, everything's shit, and he got 20 years for something that should have been two. Like, mm. it's just, 
And he thought he was, he's like, he pled guilty. He gave in. He's like, fine, I'll admit to it. And then they just fucked him over anyways. Like, he doesn't know who to trust anymore. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the prison, he played on the prison's baseball team. And he worked in a shirt factory as a seamster. Yet again, his talent with working with his hands came to light. He would often complete twice as many shirts as his quota required. And then he would finish other people's quotas as well. Which led to him getting a lot of friends inside the prison. <laughs> such as Harry Pierponts, Homer Van Meter, Charles Mackley, and Russell Clark. All of them very seasoned bank robbers. In return for finishing their quotas, they taught Dillinger everything they knew on how to be a successful criminal. And together the man would have fun planning heists that they would commit upon their release. <laughs> now at the beginning of his sentence... His wife and family would often visit, and Dillinger wrote daily love letters to Beryl. Quote, Dearest, we will be so happy when I can come home to you and chase your sorrows away. For sweetheart, I love you so all I want is to be with you and to make you happy. Write soon, but come sooner. As the years went on, Beryl visited less and less, and she wrote less and less. And eventually, mm -hmm. on the 20th of June, 1929, two days before his birthday... Dillinger received letter that Beryl had obtained a divorce. He would later say this news broke his heart. At least she didn't do it on his birthday just two days before. Right? And she didn't even come in person. She sent a letter to the yeah. warden of the prison. So the warden of the prison came down. Basically the guard was just like, hey man, uh, your wife's not your wife um, I mean, anymore. that's a fucking dick move. Mm -hmm. She didn't even come down in person. Yeah. She didn't even send him a letter. She sent a letter to the prison so the prison could <laughs> notify him. Um, Can you imagine that guard who's just like, yeah, man, your your wife is divorcing you. Um, yeah, no, there's there. It'll be all right. Remember that quote he said when he entered prison? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. At this point, Dillinger stopped being a good prisoner and tried to escape on multiple occasions, all of which failed and resulted in him being denied parole when he applied for it a year later. Then, Dillinger's closest friends, Pierpont and Van Meter, which he'd now gotten to hang out with, uh, were transferred to the Indiana State Prison, leaving Dillinger all alone. Dillinger asked to be transferred as well, claiming it was because the Indiana State Prison had a better baseball team. But in reality, it was because those friends were all he had left. Yep. Luckily, his transfer was accepted. The Indiana State Prison was an actual prison, rather than a reformatory. And life inside was considerably more brutal. He was surrounded by hardened criminals, murderers, rapists, all serving life sentences. Dillinger became depressed. He didn't talk much. He didn't join the baseball team. And he instead spent all of his waking hours in the new prison's shirt factory. He still kept on producing well over double his required quota. Now, eventually, Dillinger managed to reconnect with Pierpont and Van Meter. Now, both Pierpont and Van Meter had longer sentences than Dillinger. So he's in there for, like, he's got, like, another 16 years. They're, like, for, like, 40. Right. Um, but they had no plans on actually staying for 40. <laughs> of course not. For a while, the two had been planning a bank heist as well as a prison break. Uh, and they wanted to bribe one of the guards who carried the keys for the keys and his gun. The only issue was that the guard was not cheap. And Pierpont and Van Meter did not have any cash on hand. Now, since Dillinger was being released before them, <laughs> they decided... They would teach Dillinger everything they knew about robbery if he robbed some money and sent it back to them once he was free so that they could bribe the guard and get out as well. <laughs> and Dillinger agreed to this. Pierpont and Van Meter introduced Dillinger to a Walter Dietrich who worked for the infamous Herman Lamb, 
Lamb was a former German army officer who emigrated to the U.S. in the late 1800s. He was infamous for combining military tactics and bank robbery, something that had yet to been done. It was beyond thuggery. This was like the meticulous. This is the start of all those good like art museum robbery movies. Yeah, That's exactly. This it's, guy. it's the guy with the stopwatch. Yeah, like... he's timing everything when guard shifts on. He's in a disguise mm. scouting out the area. Um, <laughs> so Dietrich has performed many heists with Lam and had studied his techniques. And he was very eager to teach uh, Dillinger. Dillinger learned how to scout out a building from beforehand, how to look at the exterior architecture and predict and make assumptions as to what the interior looks like. So you'd see a, a pillar on the outside, like, so there's a supporting wall in there, so that room's split into, like, he'd be able to mm. look at a building and understand what the internal layout was um, at this point. Uh, he was taught techniques so he could memorize all exits and entrances, windows and doors, and he was taught how to figure out the most effective routes in and out. He was also given a list of all stores and banks that were easy to hold up, the contact information for the most reliable accomplices of Van Meter and Pierpont, and they taught him how to fence any stolen merchandise and money he managed to get his hands on. In the May of 1933, after being in prison for four years, Dillinger got a letter from his family. His stepmother was gravely ill and about to pass away. Because of this, the prison decided to overlook his escape attempts and grant him parole. Dillinger wrote to his father, quote, I know I have been a big disappointment to you, but I guess I did too much time. For where I went in a carefree boy, I came out bitter toward everything in general. If I had gotten off more leniently when I made my first mistake, this would never have happened. Which, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sadly, Dillinger arrived at the family farm the day after his stepmother had passed on. So he took the extra time to contact a few of the men on Pierpont's list and plan some robberies. On June 21st, 1933, he robbed $10,000 from the New Carlisle National Bank on the southeast corner of Main Street and Jefferson in New Carlisle uh, in Ohio. Three weeks later, on the 14th of August, he robbed $40,000 from a bank in Bluffton, Ohio. In total, this is roughly equivalent to $950,000 today, just under a million dollars. Hmm. Then Dillinger began his plan to break Pierpont and Van Meter out of prison. He hired two female criminals, Pearl Elliott and Mary Kinder, to pretend to be delivering supplies to the prison shirt shop. What they were actually delivering was boxes full of string with guns inside. Um, the prison break was set for the 27th of November, uh, September, sorry, 1933. Now that Dillinger had set everything in motion, he had some spare time to kill while he waited for the prison break. So he traveled up to Dayton, Ohio, to meet with a woman named Mary Longnacker and just have a good time. At this point, the police had been keeping a close watch over Dillinger and intercepted the information about his lady friend. When Mary's landlady told the cops that Dillinger had arrived, they stormed Mary's apartment and arrested Dillinger on the day of the prison break. While Dillinger was being hauled back to prison for the second time, Pierpont and his men escaped using the money and guns from Dillinger, fleeing to a hideout in Hamilton, Ohio. <laughs> Oh man, the timing of that. That's like, that seems so scripted. This is this is a movie waiting to be happened. I, mean, I think there is actually a Dillinger movie. I haven't seen it though. So. I think there is one. I'll yeah. have to watch it just for the accuracy to see how good it is. <laughs> but yeah, just as he's being hauled back to prison, they're breaking out. <laughs> Dillinger was now brought to the jail in Lima, Ohio, roughly 100 miles from where Pierpont was hiding out. This was an odd prison a lot of the staff lived on site to provide constant guard over the prisoners. Each prisoner was assigned a personal guard. Dillinger was put under the care of Sheriff Jess Sarber and his wife, who both lived at the jail. That's weird. Seems, 
yeah, interesting, I guess. Yeah, there's, like, houses and stuff on the property. Hmm. It's, like, the guards, like, live there. Like, there's actually, like, there's a farm there, from what I was reading the description of. So, anyways, it's kind of like a plantation, I guess, where the, I think yeah. they're, I think they're working on the farms and stuff. It's something Probably, good yeah. to that, yeah. Meanwhile, Pierpont, a man of his word, was trying to figure out how to bust out Dillinger. <laughs> so he gets out, and he's like, where's Dillinger? And he's, he's been arrested. <laughs> like, they're going to meet up, and he's, <laughs> so... Um, he figured with enough cash, he could just hire enough men and buy enough weapons to just overrun the small prison in Lima. Oh, the 1930s, an easier time. A few days later was bank holiday. Now, I had to search this up and I still have no fucking idea what this is. It's, from what I can tell, an old British holiday that's recognized in some places where banks are closed and some occupations you get the day off from work. And there are multiple of them a year. There's like six bank holidays in a year. Right. Uh um, anyways, point is, the bank was closed, and but most people were still at work. So, mm. Pierpont and two accomplices robbed the Massachusetts Avenue State Bank in Indianapolis for $21,000 on the 6th of September. Pierpont used that money to pay two men to accompany him to the prison, armed with pistols. When they arrived, Sheriff Sarber and his wife were eating dinner. Pierpont knocked on the door, claiming to be an officer from the state penitentiary, and that he had a warrant to see Dillinger. Sarber then asked to see Pierpont's credentials, and Pierpont responded by pulling a pistol out from his coat. Sarber attempted to reach for his gun, but Pierpont shot him twice in the head before he got his hand in his pocket. Then Pierpont had Miss Sarber give him the keys, and they unlocked Dillinger's cell and fled. Sarber died a few hours later. Now the gang were all accessories to murder, including Dillinger, who now had a warrant for murder, who was locked in a cell when it happened. <laughs> So he's now wanted for murder. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> good thing they gave him that 20-year sentence. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just, like, it's a string of bad decisions, but he's super unlucky. <laughs> yeah. Um, the men escaped back to Indiana, where they met with more of Pierpont's friends, and established what would be known as the first Dillinger gang. Pete Pierpont, Russell Clark, Charles Mackley, Ed Schuess, Harry Copeland, and John Red Hamilton a member of the Herman Lamb Gang. After they regrouped in Indiana, the gang stopped by the police arsenal fortress in Peru, Indiana. They spent a couple days casing the fortified building out in the middle of nowhere before Dillinger and Pierpont entered. They managed to overpower the three guards and stole everything in the entire police arsenal. They made off with dozens of Thompson machine guns, sawed-off shotguns, pistols, ammunition, and bulletproof vests for everyone. Then the gang moved to Chicago with the ambition to become the most organized and deadly bank robbers in the U.S. Well, things escalated quickly. So they went from having pistols to now having fully automatic Thompson guns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, the Dillinger gang had begun to get a bit of a reputation. The killing of Sheriff Sarber, multiple bank robberies, prison breaks, and the attack on the police arsenal had led them to being a known name all over the U.S., much thanks to the newspapers. Newspapers gladly covered the gang's exploits with sensational stories and pictures. The gang members were described as these dark, shadowy men wearing dark overcoats and hats pulled down over their face. In the articles, the gang members were said to be swift and efficient, and the law was portrayed as inept and useless and unable to deal with them. Dillinger loved this. He read every single article and kept every single clipping that remotely mentioned him or the gang. 
<laughs> now, one thing that was unusual for the time was that the gang didn't have an obvious leader. Sometimes it was called the Dillinger Gang, sometimes it was called the Pierpont Gang, but in truth, the gang had agreed that no one was the leader. Everyone had a role to play, and they planned the robberies as an egalitarian fashion. Each member provided input that was to be respected by the others. This led to the Dillinger Gang not only being ruthlessly efficient and innovative, they never had issues with internal power struggles or mutiny like many other gangs in the Chicago at the time had. They couldn't be bought. You can't just buy and bribe the head of the gang and take yeah. it down. There is no head of the gang. You can't cut off the head of the snake if there's no head. You know what I mean? That's what they did. How is it this gang is working more efficiently than some governments? Uh -huh. Like, that's not okay. Yeah. So, Dillinger and the men kept a low profile outside of the robberies. Uh, they lived quiet lives, conservatively, though they did have expensive Chicago apartments. They dressed in nice suits and pretended to be respectable businessmen. And they all had wives or girlfriends. Even if they didn't actually have them, they'd all have a woman just for show. Because mm. for some reason, if you look like you're a married man, I guess you didn't get as much suspicion back then. So if you didn't actually yeah, yeah. have a girlfriend or a wife, they'd just pay off a fellow female criminal to kind of hold their hand in public and stuff. It's, oh. yeah, it's just for sure. Oh, shock. no, say, he's a family man. He can't yeah. be a criminal. <laughs> the men did not drink anything stronger than beer, and there was a strict rule in the gang to only drink in off hours. Both Pierpont and Dillinger had a stern rule that no crimes were to be ever committed under the influence of alcohol or drugs as it would lead to mistakes. Hmm. All gang members had to agree to these rules or they would be kicked out. Compared to other gangs of this time, the Dillinger gang was ruthlessly organized, almost militarily. They didn't rely on thuggery or bribes to hold a position of power. Their reputation alone made everyone in both law and crime utterly terrified of them. So other gangs are doing like the thug thing, where they're like, they'll just kick down a door and, you know, yeah. demand protection money. And these guys, like, no drugs, no alcohol, ruthlessly organized, stay out of the limelight, don't buy expensive cars, you know, live your life as a normal businessman. Mm. And it's working. Over the next three months after they arrived in Chicago, the gang went on a montage-worthy spree of bank robberies across <laughs> Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Everyone was perfectly planned and executed. But the gang had now begun to acquire a bit of a theatrical flair to them. Before every robbery, as they were standing outside the bank, Dillinger would rally up his men, fire his pistol into the air, and say, quote, Okay, boys, let's go make a withdrawal. <laughs> uh... The men were well-equipped with bulletproof vests and Thompson machine guns. Their getaway vehicles were extremely powerful modified Ford coupes with V8 engines, well beyond what the cops had, so they had no chance of catching up to these guys. The cars were uh, disguised to look like common work vehicles, and they would be discarded shortly, shortly after the robbery. On one of the robberies, Dillinger and his men pretended to be alarm system sales representatives, which got them direct access to the bank's vault. On another time, they pretended to be a film crew filming a movie about a oh bank robbery. <laughs> Bystanders and employees literally watched as the men robbed the vault, filmed it, and walked away. Oh my god, that is perfect. So not only are they doing it in front of everyone, they filmed it. There's evidence. They made their own evidence. <laughs> they Imagine being the, out. Like the guy who has to explain this to the cops. So um, you, you, you let do. them in. And I thought they had they, a camera. It looked serious. Um, and they, they, they oh, okay. And they, they just walked out. Yeah. Well, they were making a film and like they said cut. It was over. 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. Let me just uh, write something down. Uh, you just see, like, filed. These guys are morons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, at this point, Dillinger had gone all in with the theatrical. During one robbery, he entered the bank, shot into the air, and said, quote, Now nobody get nervous. You ain't got nothing to fear. You're being robbed by the John Dillinger gang. That's the best there is. <laughs> okay, so at this point, he's just, like, uh, he's ragged. All in. Yeah. Uh, he's all in. Another time, he entered a bank and said, quote, these few dollars you lose here today are going to buy you stories to tell your children and great-grandchildren. This could be one of the big moments in your life. Don't make it your last. <laughs> I mean, he's good. He's good. He's, he's good. real good. He's really good. <laughs> he's also feeding the press with that. Like, oh, they holy... love him. Yeah. Oh, the sensationalist newspapers, they're all over this. Um, despite being absolutely terrified of the gang, the public loved reading about Dillinger and his robberies. Of course, he's entertaining. On another bank robbery, Dillinger and his men entered a bank and walked up to the teller. A farmer was standing there with a handful of cash. Dillinger walked up and asked the farmer if the money he was holding was his or the bank's. He said it was, uh, his. Dillinger responded, quote, keep it, we only want the bank's. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't rob the little guys. Uh, the banks robbed were the Home Banking Company in St. Mary's, Ohio for $12,000, the Central National Bank and Trust Co. in Greens Castle, Indiana for $74,802 on October 23rd, the American Bank and Trust Co. in Racine, Wisconsin for $28,000 on November 20th, and the First National Bank in East Chicago, Indiana for $20,000 on January 5th, 1934. In total, over the three months, Dillinger and his men robbed $134,802 or... $2.5 million in today's money. That's halfway decent. After these three months, which went really well, mm -hmm. the gang decided to take the holidays off in 1934. They were going to travel down to Florida and spend some of their cash. Right before they were about to leave, one of the gang members, John Hamilton, was picking up his car at an auto repair shop. When a local officer named Shanley was following up on a tip that a car seen at a bank heist was in said shop. When Shanley approached Hamilton, Hamilton panicked, drew his pistol, and shot Shanley twice, killing him. The murder led to the Chicago Police Department establishing what would be called the Dillinger Squad, which was a team of 40 specialized agents from across the U.S. designed to take down Dillinger and his gang. <laughs> the gang spent their holidays in Florida, but instead of heading back to Chicago, Pierpont decided they should head for Arizona, just stay low for a little while, seeing as every cop in the Midwest was searching for them. Mm. After all, they had more than enough cash to live off of for months. But before heading west, Dillinger grabbed his girlfriend, uh, Billy Frechette, and Hamilton, the gang member who shot the cop. And before he went into hiding for a few months, he just wanted, he wanted to do one more robbery. Just one more. So he's going to have some extra spending cash. Uh, it's always that one more. Yeah. So Dillinger and Hamilton agreed to rob the First National Bank of Gary, Indiana. They left a getaway car parked across the street, running with a friend behind the wheel. Dillinger entered the bank, drew a Thompson machine gun, yelling to the 30 people inside, quote, This is a stick-up! Put your hands up and get back against the wall. Then he told Hamilton to come in. Meanwhile, the bank's vice president, Walter Spencer, had set off a silent alarm in his office. Hamilton began scooping money into a large leather bag, and Dillinger told him, quote, Take your time. We're in no hurry. Getting cocky. <laughs> Meanwhile, four officers had arrived outside. Patrick O'Malley, which was a stereotype, uh, Hobart Wilgus, Pete Wallen, and Julius Schrenko. 
They could see through the window that the robbery was ongoing and that Dillinger was holding a Thompson machine gun. So Schrenko ran to a nearby drugstore to call for more men. Meanwhile, Officer Wilgus just barged into the bank alone. He was armed with a single pistol. Dillinger saw him coming, aimed the gun at him, and ordered him to hand the gun over, which he did. Uh, Dillinger emptied the bullets from the gun and tossed it back to Wilgus. When Wilgus looked worryingly at the Thompson gun, Dillinger laughed and said, quote, Ah, you ought be a- need be afraid of this thing. I ain't even sure if it'll shoot. <laughs> After he- he's disarmed him. Yeah, yeah. Then Dillinger turned to Hamilton and said, quote, Don't let those coppers outside worry you. Take your time and be sure to get all the dough. We'll take care of them birds on the outside when we get through here. Due to the call, four more officers arrived, Captains Tim O'Neill and Ed Knight, and Officers Rick Ren- uh, Nick Renich and Lloyd Mullyville. Somehow the officers, all eight of them, uh, seven of them, were waiting across the street for Dillinger. Behind the getaway car that was running with a man <laughs> sitting behind the wheel. So they're literally hiding behind the getaway car across the street, looking at the bank through the windows. Oh, God. And the oh, guy in the car so is just sweating bullets. <laughs> Don't look at them. Don't look at them. Just... <laughs> it's amazing. Once the money was bagged, Dillinger ordered Wilgus, the cocky police officer, and the bank's mm-hmm. vice president, Spencer, to walk out first to act as shields. O'Malley, who was about 20 feet away from the door, saw an opening and fired four bullets at Dillinger, and all of them hit him in the chest. He was wearing a bulletproof vest, so they dropped harmlessly to the ground. Dillinger slowly turned to O'Malley, pushed Spencer out of the way, and said, quote, move over. I'm going to get that son of a bitch. O'Malley could only stare as he'd emptied his gun as Dillinger unloaded eight bullets from a Thompson machine gun straight into O'Malley, who dropped dead on the spot. Then he continued firing as he and Hamilton crossed the street into the getaway car. One of the cops fired back, hitting Hamilton in the right hand, destroying it. Once in the car, they sped off. Uh, Due to Hamilton's hand, he was not able to close the door, so it got ripped off when they drove past another parked car. They drove off, abandoned the car a few miles away, and headed on to meet the rest of the gang in a new car. The entire time, I'm just picturing him completely calm. Mm-hmm. It's like no, he oh, was. You shot me. Yeah, yeah. The descriptions, like... like the descriptions, he's wearing like those leather trench coats, the brimmed hat, drawn over, and he's just super calm and collected. He never yelled at them when he like entered a bank teller when to get down. He's just super calculated. Oh, it's gonna be terrifying for the cops seeing like a guy just like oh. casually stroll out, shoot a guy, and just like well, move no, on. No, picture it for O'Malley. You shot him four times in the chest, and the bullets drop to the ground, and he turns towards you, pushes his meat shield out of the way. Right, right, yeah. And says, yeah. get out of the way, I'm gonna get this son of a bitch. And you're standing there with a small little revolver and have to reload it, and he's got a top, like, just that one moment of realization of just, like, it's just whoops. That's all that's going through your head. Just, oh, it's not, oh, but, shit. It, <laughs> I it's mean, like, yeah. Ugh. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, meanwhile, the rest of the gang had arrived in Tucson, Arizona. They rented rooms in a fancy hotel and planned to stay there for a while. Now, it's not known what caused it, but a fire broke out in the hotel where the gang was sitting, or like, sleeping, Mm. which brought the cops, which led to the gang members getting arrested because they just happened to be in a building where a fire broke out. Oh, that's his bad luck kicking in again, isn't it? Dillinger arrived in Tooks in the day after the fire, got a room in a hotel, 
and realized that his entire gang was arrested. They had snitched him out, and he too was arrested the following morning. Oh, God. What followed was the most chaotic clusterfuck of bureaucracy I have ever had to figure out when I'm writing a snippet. State officials from every state in the Midwest were demanding extradition for each of the men for different crimes. And because each state wanted the men, each state was arguing with each other state that the crime the men had committed in their state was worse than the crime committed in the other state, and therefore they should have the men, not that state. It's insane. So one state's like, well, they murdered a dude. And this state's like, they robbed a ton of money, which would have gone to an orphanage. Ours is worse. So they're trying to set a pretense for morality and stuff. And it's just these states arguing. And the cops are just holding on. It's like, where do we send them? <laughs> There's like 20 states who want them. They're all trying to one-up each other Yeah, it's well, literally what but... they're doing. And on top of that, each man is wanted for different states and different reasons. And it's just a mess. Um... Most states were claiming that they had what's known as supreme jurisdiction, meaning that whatever happened in our state's worse than anything else, and we're going to overrule the demands of the other state. But when every state is claiming supreme jurisdiction, no state's got supreme jurisdiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The end result was that the gang was split up with each member going to a different state for a different crime. Dillinger <laughs> himself was ordered to go with the police captain Matt Leach back to Indiana, where he would be tried for the murder on Officer O'Malley. When Dillinger arrived, he was taken to the office of Lake County Sheriff Lillian Holly. She was not actually a sheriff. Her husband had been the sheriff, and he had died in the line of duty fighting another criminal, and she decided to finish serving her husband's term in his place. This naturally made her look at Dillinger and his crimes on a rather personal level. <laughs> She's not an unbiased source of law. Nope. No. Her small office had been turned into a command central of sorts to deal with Dillinger, and it was packed with reporters and photographers. The windows were full of faces and camera lenses, all trying to get a glimpse of the infamous Dillinger. A photographer asked Dillinger to pose for them with the officers who'd captured him, which he gladly did. He placed his elbow on the shoulder of Robert Estill and leaned on him nonchalantly. The picture was printed in newspapers all over the Midwest. The issue is that Robert Estill was not an officer or a cop. Robert Estill was a normal lawyer who was wanting to run for governor. The picture made him lose all face, earn the reputation as a man who worked with criminals, and permanently ruined his career. As far as I could tell, wow. he went on to be a grocer, and that's the rest of his life. Because the dude leaned on him. Yep. Wow. Permanently ruined his career in the government as a lawyer. That's nuts. So, oops. It's a good picture, though. It's out there. <laughs> As the cops and lawyers were trying to decode the clusterfuck of extradition orders, Dillinger was placed in the Crown Point prison, which was said to be, quote, inescapable. <laughs> That's called foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. On the 3rd of March, 1934, Dillinger used a razor, carved a piece of wood from a shelf in his cell into the shape of a gun, used shoe polish to paint the wood black, and then used it to force the guards to let him escape. Please tell me he got one of their guns. Nope. Nope? Nope. He used a piece of wood painted black to escape prison. Out Inescapable. Outside, he stole Sheriff Holly's, the wife. Mm -hmm. He stole her personal police car and drove off to Chicago. <laughs> With a piece of wood and, like, shoe polish. 
Because he crossed the state border in a stolen police vehicle, he had committed a felony, which meant that now the FBI had to get involved. Oh, boy. Now, as for the other members of the first Dillinger gang, Pierpoint was executed on October 17th. Mackley was arrested trying to buy a radio capable of picking up police chatter and was shot dead by guards when he too tried to escape prison using fake pistols carved from bars of soap. And the other gang members were in prison for the rest of their life. Meanwhile, Dillinger arrived back in Chicago, and he began putting together another gang. This time, he was not as careful picking out members, hiring multiple, quote, misfits and a few psychopaths. Yeah, those are the ones you want to work with. One of these was Lester Gillis, known as Babyface Nelson, a hitman and thug who ran a kidnapping gang of his own. Van Meter was also in the new gang, and this gang was simply called The Dillinger Gang. Mm. They immediately began a new spree of robberies. Three days after he escaped from Crown Point Prison using a piece of wood, Dillinger and his gang decided to rob a bank in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So... On Oct- uh, no, on March 6, at 9.45 a.m., Dillinger and six members of his gang, Babyface Nelson, Hamilton, Green, Van Meter, and Carroll, rolled up in a green 1934 Packard Super 8. The bank's bookkeeper, Mary Lucas, saw the car park across the street, and she said to her friend, a stenographer sitting next to her, quote, If I ever saw a hold-up car, that's one. The stenographer laughed her off, saying Mary had been reading too many articles about those Dillinger boys. <laughs> a few moments later, Dillinger and his men walked in with Tommy guns. <laughs> that's like right out of a movie. That's not even, that's straight out yeah. of a comedy movie. That's like a, oh, uh, God. <laughs> you've been reading too much about those Dillinger boys. <laughs> it's like literally minutes later they walk in. That's, oh. Uh, they subdued the bookkeepers and began bagging cash. As this went on, a motorcycle patrolman named Hale Keith drove up to the bank. Babyface Nelson saw him coming and unloaded his Tommy gun through the window at the cop, who was hit in the chest, right leg, hip, right wrist, and right arm, and fell in a bloody pile on the street. Nelson was described as laughing himself to tears, saying, quote, I got one! I got one! Yeah, misfits and psychopaths. Maybe, maybe not the same <laughs> Dillinger gang. When the call of the robbery came in, Sheriff Mel Sells was performing an interview with H.M. Showbotham of the Daily Argus Leader. He leapt up, grabbed a Tommy gun for himself, and a shotgun which he threw at the reporter, ordering him to come along. <laughs> Together, the sheriff and the terrified reporter drove to the bank to stop Dillinger. <laughs> Oh, to be a fly on the wall there. Oh. <laughs> Sells plans to enter the building across the street, get to the second floor, where he could shoot down on Dillinger. Dillinger exited the bank, surrounded by bystanders, bookkeepers, and anyone they could grab inside, making it impossible to shoot them. Then they got in their car and ordered six random people to get in with them. Leo Olson, Mildred Bostwick, Alice Began, and Mary Lucas, the girl who saw the car coming and said it was a hold-up car, and her friend Emma Knobak, who mocked her for saying it was the Dillinger Boys. <laughs> so they're now hostages of the Dillinger Boys, and I can only picture the glare Mary's giving to Emma this entire car if ride. ever there was a I told you so oh, moment. God. Oh my god. So satisfying. <laughs> 
in the small car, there were now 12 people, six of Dillinger's gang and six hostages, as well as a ton of supplies, canisters of gas, uh, gas, weapons, and bags upon bags of cash. They sped off in the cramped clown car of criminals. As they left the scene, an officer was able to shoot out the radiator of the car, which led to the engine igniting as they drove off. But they didn't stop because Dillinger's nuts. A few blocks away, a fireman, Bill Conklin, was sitting out on the porch, smoking, when he saw a burning car frantically driving down the road towards him. He ran inside and grabbed his fire extinguisher and ran out to meet the car. The car did not slow down. As Dillinger drove past the fireman, he pointed at him with his Tommy gun from the window and yelled, quote, Get back in there! And then continued (laughs) driving down the road in a burning car with 12 people in. Oh, that's crazy. (laughs) The car died a few miles outside of town, and the cops finally caught up. Dillinger and his men surrounded themselves with the six hostages and readied their Tommy guns. As the cops approached, six Tommy guns unloaded into their three vehicles, and they all turned around and drove back to town amidst the rain of bullets. So they're standing in the middle of the street, and they've got six Tommy guns, and three cop cars come, get absolutely littered with bullets, and they just turn around and go back. (laughs) (laughs) Dillinger and the Uh gang then stole the car of a local farmer who just happened to drive past, Alfred Musch. They moved all the gas, the money, and the hostages over into the new car, and they continued driving. And ten miles down the road, they kicked all the hostages out of the car and disappeared. (laughs) A week after that, Dillinger decided he needed to rob another bank. I mean, the last one was so successful, might as well go for another one. This time, they were going to rob the first national bank in Mason City, Iowa. On March 13th at 2.40 p.m., Dillinger and the same six men arrived at the bank in a 1933 Blue Buick uh, 90-series sedan with the rear view window removed. When they entered the bank, a freelance photographer was taking pictures. Dillinger told them to put the camera away as, quote, we're the ones who will be doing the shooting today. He has great one-liners. Uh, his one-liners are amazing. <laughs> that That's a good quote. Yeah. <laughs> the men fired bursts of bullets into the ceiling and had the 31 employees and 25 customers put their hands up. Tom Walters, a bank guard, was stationed on a bulletproof balcony overlooking the bank's lobby. He fired a tear gas grenade, which hit Green in the back. Green responded by turning around and unloading so much Tommy gun at the bulletproof balcony, the bulletproof glass shattered, and the bank guard, Walter, stayed hidden under the desk for the rest of the heist. <laughs> yeah, probably a good choice. So he goes, thunk, and the dude turns around and just sprays nonstop for like 20 seconds until the glass gives away, and they're just like, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> they just stayed under the desk for the rest of the heist. Uh, the amount of bullets you have to fire at bulletproof glass for uh-huh. it to give away, by the way. That's a uh-huh. solid, that's just 20 seconds of, of rat-a-tat-tat. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it probably doesn't feel good to get a tear gas canister launched to your back, though, I can picture. No, probably not. I mean, he'd have a bulletproof vest. I probably took the worst of the blunt, but yeah. Well, still, you, you, get, you get like a yeah. spray buff that. Meanwhile, huge crowds had gathered outside the bank. An off-duty cops, James Buchanan, grabbed the shotgun and waited for the men to exit the bank. When they finally did, he couldn't fire because there was just a massive amount of people swarming Dillinger. So he tried to intimidate Dillinger. Buchanan yelled at him, telling him to come away from the crowd and fight him one-on-one like a man. Dillinger responded by pulling out a thirty-eight revolver, firing through the crowd at Buchanan, missing him by an inch. 
Buchanan decided not to challenge Dillinger anymore and sat down. <laughs> yeah, smart boy. At this point, babyface Nelson wanted in on the fun and just began shooting bursts into random directions. R.L. James, a random bystander, was hit in the leg by three bullets. One of the robbers, Tommy Carroll, rushed over to make sure the bystander James was okay. So again, they don't they don't want to hurt the little guys. They hate well, cops and they hate bankers. Most of them don't. They well, have like Nelson some... is screwed up, but Nelson's yeah, no, he's yeah. just like a maniac who wants to shoot yeah. everything and everyone. So so Tommy Carroll runs over to the bystanders bleeding on the pavement. Um, and he's trying to make sure he's okay, trying to stop the bleeding, when an oncoming police car drives down the road. Tommy Carroll excused himself, stood up, covered the police car in Tommy gun fire, and then sat back down to continue checking on the bystander as the police car crashed into an alley in the background. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. That's, that's an incredible scene. <laughs> that's such a good scene. Excuse me, sir. <laughs> Okay, Ooh. you're going to want to put some pressure on that. <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, a judge, John C. Shipley, in a building across the street, came to the window to see what the fuck was going on. Because <laughs> there's just a car crashing an alleyway and a ton of people. Um, yep. He opened the window, and Dillinger fired a volley up at him, and the judge retreated. He went to his desk, grabbed a pistol, returned, and fired, hitting Dillinger in the left shoulder. The gang then moved on down the street in a group... The judge continued firing, this time hitting Hamilton in the shoulder. When the gang passed James, the bystander was hit in the leg, who was bleeding, uh, Hamilton asked Dillinger, quote, I thought there wasn't going to be any more of this. To which babyface Nelson piped up, quote, I thought he was a copper. He's the comedic relief. That's what Bayface Nelson is. He's That's the, the violent psychopath yeah. comedic relief. Oh, God. Also, he's called Babyface Nelson because he's like 30. He's super yeah. short and he looks like he's 12. Like he's just got this pudgy, huge cheek oh. face. So he's just this small, roly-poly little dude. Crazy kid. Yeah. yeah. As the gang approached uh, their getaway car, uh, Babyface Nelson grabbed a group of women from a butcher shop and used them as shields. When one of the women started screaming at him, he snatched her purse, threw it to the ground, stomped on it, and said, quote, You'll get paid plenty for it, and handed her some cash. This shut her up. <laughs> the gang then had the women get into the getaway car with them, and as they drove off, they would shoot any oncoming cars, leaving a trail of parked and crashed cars behind them, making it impossible for the cops to actually follow in vehicle. Because it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's just wreckage of cars. Mm. After a few miles, they dropped off the women and disappeared. Later, when one of the women was asked if she could identify the men, she said, quote, I sure would, especially that one who winked at me. <laughs> oh. I mean, yes. I mean, they're criminals and they're killing people, but they've got style. Oh, they've got, so, like, she's trying to not come across, but you know that was said. She was biting her lip. There's a little bit of a yeah, lip bite in that, yeah. wasn't there? There was a little Especially bit the of one that who winked there. At me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's probably not Nelson, though. He's probably just sitting in the backseat drooling at them. <laughs> <laughs> probably Hamilton. He's the German dude. He was, like, the slickest yeah, of yeah. them all, yeah. The gang ditched the car outside of town and then transferred over into two other cars that they had waiting and sped off. They headed to St. Paul's Green Lantern, which was a pub in St. Paul's. The pub was Pat Riley, a 27-year-old fringe gang member who dropped out when he got married and had a kid. The reason Dillinger and the gang went to Riley is because Riley knew where Dr. Mortensen was. 
Dr. Mortensen was a black market doctor. And half the men in the gang currently had a bullet wound of some sort that needed to be treated. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Riley, the men were able to figure out where Dr. Mortensen was and arrived at his home at midnight. He answered the door in his nightclothes. During the examination, he probed wounds and said that Dillinger looked, quote, quite ill and wobbly or faint. Mortensen said that none of the men's wounds looked life-threatening, and he didn't have any medical supplies at his house at the moment. So Mortensen asked Dillinger if his men had any alcohol. Dillinger confirmed they did. So Mortensen told them to go home, take as many stiff drinks as they could handle, and come back in the morning. <laughs> They've got bleeding bullet wounds. He's like, go home, drink until you're unconscious, come back in the morning when I have my supplies. <laughs> oh, he's a black yeah. market doctor, what do you expect? But <laughs> yeah, pretty well, you get what you pay for, I guess. Dillinger and the gang went back to the hotel, got absolutely plastered, and in the following morning drove off without actually returning to the doctors. Oh, God. They patched themselves up as best they could. I'm like, ah, fuck it. Um, Dillinger and the gang went to a hideout in Wisconsin, which was a type of like a resort lodge called Little Bohemia. It was out in the mm -hmm. middle of the woods, and they were going to uh, stay there and lay low and recover from their wounds. <coughs> Excuse me. The owner of the lodge, um, Emil Wanatka, recognized Dillinger and looked visibly worried. <laughs> Dillinger assured Wanatka he wouldn't be in any trouble, but he kept a close watch on Wanatka just in case he didn't believe him. Mm. And that was a smart thing to do, as Wanatka was terrified for the safety of his family and wrote a letter to U.S. Attorney George Fisher about who was in the lodge. The next day, Wanatka's wife asked to go to her nephew's birthday party. Dillinger said it was fine, but Nelson would have to come along. Hmm. <laughs> That's the guy you want to send to a birthday party? <laughs> I mean, oh. arguably, yeah. So, we don't know how, but somehow, Wanatka's wife was able to distract Nelson, sneak away, and post the letter. Now, it's a child's birthday party, so I assume she just showed him a balloon, and he was, like, occupied for half an hour. <laughs> yeah, no, he seems like the type. Yeah. It's, oh, look, there's a clown performing. Oh, really? <laughs> An hour later. Uh, we have to leave now? Oh, no, 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 he's not done like, yet. He's she, not done. she snuck off to post a letter. So, I mean, she went to a post office. Like, she's, that's a long time. You're gone for a while. That's like a good 20 minutes. Like, I have no idea what she did, but Nelson didn't notice. Um, so anyways, uh, later, a local FBI agent named Melvin Purvis received the letter. And on the 23rd of April, 1934, FBI agents drove out to the Little Bohemia Lodge. They stopped two miles away from the lodge, turned off all their lights, and walked the remaining distance on foot. They didn't want to alert them of their arrival. When the FBI agents arrived at the lodge, they saw three men exiting and opened fire. They killed one, wounded two. The men were just some random workers at the lodge. Uh, meanwhile, the real gang members inside now freaked the fuck out and realized what was going on. Uh, so they came to the windows with Tommy guns and the whole property exploded into a war zone of crossfire. The gang was prepared for a potential raid and simply escaped out the back of the lodge, split into multiple groups and disappeared into the woods. So the FBI came and just shot three people who were just outside. Just three random workers, killing one, wounding two others. <laughs> yeah. So walking those two miles with no lights, that's all all for naught. It's just... Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel bad for those three guys. Just oh, like, God. Oh. Just, they were just outside. They wrong were place, it. wrong time. Like, if, oh. <sighs> Fuck. Anyways, at this point, the FBI labeled Dillinger as public enemy number one and placed a $10,000 bounty on him. It was getting harder and harder for Dillinger to lay low. So in the summer of 1934, 
Dillinger went to the home of Jimmy Probasco, a Chicago bar owner with deep connections in the mob. He set Dillinger up with a plastic surgeon, a man <laughs> named Dr. Wilhelm Lozer. Lozer had been s- uh, selling illegal medication on the black market for 27 years when the Harrison Narcotic Act of 1931 lost him his license. So now he was doing underworld plastic surgery for the Chicago mob. <laughs> Dillinger arrived on the 28th of May, 1934 at 7.30 a.m. Dillinger would later testify in court, quote, I asked him what work he wanted done. He wanted two warts or moles removed from the right lower forehead between the eyes and one at the left angle, outer angle of the left eye. He wanted a depression of the nose filled in. He wanted a scar. He wanted a large one to the left of the median line of the upper lip exercised. He wanted his dimples removed, and he wanted the angle of the mouth drawn up. He didn't say anything about the fingers that day to me, though. Dr. Lozer ordered one of the gang members, Cassidy, to give Dillinger a dose of ether. The gang member, having no idea what a dose meant, gave Dillinger a massive overdose, paralyzing Dillinger's lungs, causing him to turn blue and suffocate. Dr. Lozer sighed, calmly walked over, used a pair of pliers to pull out Dillinger's tongue, and then slammed both elbows as hard as he could into Dillinger's chest. Dillinger gasped, resumed breathing, and the procedure continued. <laughs> so this doctor is sketchy. Yeah. Like, he just sighed and went, fine, goes over and just goes, Ugh! like that's a full-on wrestling move, that's what he did. And then he gasped and he goes back to like reading his tools. <laughs> That's the kind of doctor where there's, like, bloody instruments on the wall. Oh, his, and shit. He, he's, I, I can't picture him without an apron splattered in blood. Yeah, 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 definitely. He's got, like, a butcher's apron on, and he's just sharpening knives in the background. Just give him some ether! How much? <laughs> just give him some ether! Uh, <laughs> he's that, you know? Uh, um, from this point on, Dillinger requested they only use local anesthetic. Uh, Dr. Loser removed several moles. Reshaped the nose, gave him a notched chin, and tied back both cheeks. But Dillinger wasn't done yet. He came back the following day with another request. He wanted his fingerprints gone. Okay. Dr. Loser would later testify in court. Cassidy and I worked on Dillinger and Van Meter simultaneously on June 3rd. While the work was being done, Dillinger and Van Meter changed off. The work that could be done while the patient was sitting up, uh, the patient was in the sitting room. The work that had to be done while the man was lying down, the patient was on the couch in the bedroom. They were changed back and forth according to the work to be done. The hands were sterilized, made aseptic with antiseptics, thoroughly washed with soap and water, and used sterile gauze afterwards to keep them clean. Next, cutting instrument, knife, was used to expose the lower skin. In other words, I took off the epidermis and exposed the derma. Then, instantly applied acid and alkaloid that was necessary to produce the desired results. Mm-hmm. So he skinned the fingertips and dipped them in acid. Ah. After the operation, Dillinger wanted to rob another bank. Of course, he doesn't have fingerprints anymore. No. Uh, by the way, ow! Uh-huh. This is like, it, it was like, when did he get the operation? So he went to rob the bank on the 30th of June. He got the operation on uh, 28th of May. So it took him a month to recover. From, you know, loss of fingertips and facial reconstruction. By the way, plastic surgery, 1934, not good. No, no. No, no, no. So, um, yeah, he wanted to rob another bank. On June 30th, 1934, Dillinger, 
Nelson, and a getaway driver, arrived at the Merchants National Bank of South Bend, Indiana. The second they entered, Nelson began firing at the roof to get everyone to shut up. This, of course, attracted the attention of everyone on the outside of the bank, too. Why is he still there? We'll actually get to that. Okay. Now, the crowd this time was different. The FBI had a $10,000 bounty on Dillinger and smaller ones on anyone remotely associated with Dillinger. Several bystanders and police officers came running to the bank the second shots were fired. Van Meter was standing outside, guard, when a police officer, Howard Wagner, began shooting at him. Then multiple bystanders just leapt onto Van Meter. He beat the hell out of them, then turned around, fired a single shot at the police officer, hitting him square between the eyes, killing him instantly. Nelson came running out, only to be shot in the back by a shop owner with a pistol. The bulletproof vest stopped the bullet, but Nelson was pissed. He spun around, began firing before he'd even turned entirely around, and this sprayed wildly in the general direction of the shop owner. Nelson hit two random people, but not the shop owner. (laughs) Of course not. Then, a teenager leapt onto Nelson, trying to beat the shit out of him. Here's why Dillinger had hired Nelson. With a single hand, Nelson picked the kid up and threw him through a shop window, then shot him in the air before the kid hit the ground. Okay. So he's strong. (laughs) He's the muscle. He's the muscle, and he's a head shorter than everyone. He's just, the pictures, I'll have to send you, like, the pictures of him. Just search up Babyface Nelson, guys, (laughs) because seriously, he's just this round, roly-poly dude with a bowler hat, and it's amazing. Um... Meanwhile, Dillinger had grabbed as many hostages as possible and exited the bank. But this time, nobody gave a fuck about the hostages. Police and citizens just started firing at Dillinger. None of the bullets hit him, but multiple of the hostages fell overshot. <laughs> oh, the amount of bystanders that have been oh, shot. Collateral damage like... in this story is <laughs> terrible. The firing continued as the gang worked their way towards the car. Van Meter was shot in the head by a .22 caliber bullet, which entered his forehead, burrowed under the scalp, exiting six inches to the back. Nelson picked the unconscious Van Meter up and threw him over the shoulder and continued running with him to the car, firing with a Tommy gun into the crowd. The gang jumped into the car and got away, but the public's view on them had changed. The age of the Robin Hood gentleman robber was over. The public wanted blood and money. Mm-hmm. A few weeks later, on July 22nd, 1934, at 8.30 p.m., Dillinger arrived at the Biograph Theater with friend Sage Hamilton and his girlfriend Anna Sage. Now, we don't know much about how he met Anna, or much about Anna at all, really. What we do know is that she was Romanian, she was really mm-hmm. poor, she worked as a prostitute, and she was paid a shitload of money by the FBI to give up Dillinger. <laughs> FBI agent Purvis, the same dude who was from the attack on the lodge and killed three random people... Uh, Mm -hmm. had two agents posted outside the Biograph Theater, with himself standing outside the entrance. As Dillinger entered the theater, he looked Purvis straight in the eyes, but didn't recognize him from the lodge. When Dillinger passed Purvis, Purvis pulled out his gun and yelled, quote, Stick him up, Johnny! We have you surrounded! Dillinger tried to run, turning into an alley as he drew his gun. The two agents were in the alley waiting for him, and Dillinger ran straight into a volley of gunfire. Four bullets hit him in the chest, three from the back, one in the front, Two hit him in the face. A third bullet hit him in the neck, traveled up the spine, and exited under his right eye, fatally killing him. Crowds quickly gathered, 
many dipping their handkerchiefs in Dillinger's blood as souvenirs. <laughs> Dillinger was taken to Alexian Brothers Hospital and officially pronounced dead, and from there he was taken to the Cook County morgue. Hundreds of people followed the FBI cars to the hospital, and thousands followed from the hospital to the morgue, hoping to see the dead Dillinger. Over the next day, 15,000 people surrounded the tiny morgue trying to see Dillinger. He was moved to the MacReady Funeral Home, then to a hearse that was given a police escort to the Indiana border to keep the crowds off. From Indiana, his corpse was taken back to Mooresville, where his sister Audrey, who took care of him as a child, identified the body. Dillinger was buried on July 25th, 1934, in a family plot at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis, Indiana. That's the story of John Dillinger. Oh, my God. Good <laughs> thing eBay wasn't a thing back then. Those handkerchiefs would have sold like crazy. I, th- I actually think there's still like, there's still a lot of them around. Like, there was like a hundred or something. It was a nuts. Jeez. I, st- I still think they, like, they definitely go for a lot of money now. But I think there's a lot of like, uh, fake ones and stuff. Yeah, for sure. I actually think like the Smithsonian has one on display. No joke. Hmm. I have to search it up. I remember, I remember seeing a picture of one online. I just don't remember where it was, but there was like one in like a display case. I remember that. Anyways. What a crazy story. Yeah. Jesus. No, like every trope in movie about like the gentleman bank robber, this dude yeah. did it first. Yeah. Like a lot of people, like when you think about Tommy guns and mafia, mm-hmm. like you think back to Al Capone, but this guy was earlier. Like it's just, yeah. it's oh, early. Well, yeah. Anyways, uh, it's not this, this. <laughs> Fuck. All right. Well, that's John Dillinger, ladies and gentlemen. Until next time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Yeah. What a good story, man. <laughs>